Hey everyone, it's Tim Nelson here. Welcome to this week's podcast, Cause to Cure. This podcast is my personal take as it relates to our team's activities focused on congenital heart disease. My day-to-day experience with the largest dedicated team focused on single ventricle congenital heart disease was founded at Mayo Clinic by the Todd and Karen Wanick Family Program. This team is accountable to the development of new products that aims to cure congenital heart disease. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to this week's podcast, Cause to Cure. This is Tim Nelson. I'm here with Kelly, and Kelly has a remarkable story. Uh, she's been with our program and as a research participant, has been at Feel the Beat, and uh, it's great to reconnect with you today, Kelly. Welcome. Hi, Dr. Nelson. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Now, you're the first person all week that's called me Dr. Nelson, and hopefully the last time you call me that. Everybody knows to call me Tim, so no need to do that doctor thing with me, okay? I'll try. I'll try. All right. It's great. It's great to see you. You too. You too. It's been a while. It's been a long time, and I know um, in our quarantine world that we live in and social distancing, it's a, it's a privilege to to see you and, and hear you today. So, uh, Kelly, uh, you've talked at Feel the Beat before, and you've shared your story on social media and other places. But uh, for those that uh, don't remember, or those that are new to our podcast, uh, give everybody the snapshot of who you are—not only from your congenital heart experience, but just more broadly of who—who's Kelly? Sure. So I am 31 years old, actually 31 and a half as of Saturday. Um, living with HLHS. I was born in November of 1988. I had all my repairs done at Children's Hospital of Milwaukee. And post Fontan, you know, I, I was very fortunate. I did very well growing up. My parents treated me like a normal kid and I, you know, had a pretty much normal life. Didn't really feel the effects um, of anything too much up until my college years when I started dealing with, you know, a few things that come along with HLHS, such as arrhythmias and clots and some collateral vessels. Um, But I work full time for a financial service company. I've been married to my husband, Mike, for six years now. And uh, we're both very active in the heart community and we love to travel. I want to get back on the road and take a trip. Where would you recommend the next trip I take in the continental United States? So my brother lives in Santa Cruz. I was just in Northern California on a girl's trip. Um, we did San Francisco and Napa, but I also love Southern California because I'm a big beach person. Awesome. So I guess that'd have to be my, my pick. I also want to go to the Florida Keys and do some snorkeling. So You're an adventurous soul. That's great. Yes, we we are we'll travel obsessed. That's awesome. Um, so let me start from the beginning here a little bit. Uh, Milwaukee in 1988. Um, that was back in the in the day where um, not a lot of people were doing this, and Milwaukee was put on the map with Dr. Litton and Dr. Twiddle uh, uh, back there. Stu Berger. Um, that was uh, uh, probably the best place outside of maybe Washington, where many of them trained at the time of the outcomes for HLHS. And they published a paper back then, if I remember, where outcomes of the Norwood operation were the best in the country. Uh, who was your surgeon there? Uh, Dr. Litwin. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And my cardiologist was Dr. Friedberg. I don't know if you know that name or not. For sure. Okay. Back in that early days, that was a pretty uncertain time. I mean, the Norwood operation was only a few years old, honestly, at that point, and there's only a handful of places doing it. 
what do you uh, recall your parents sharing with you about those early days of the diagnosis and how your parents reacted to it? So they were absolutely shocked. They had no idea. Nothing was detected in utero. So they were expecting, you know, totally normal baby. So when I was first born, I was cyanotic and, uh, you know, the the doctors fortunately picked up right away that something wasn't quite right, but that's all they told them. You know, something's not quite right. We need to take her away for some tests. And I was gone for a couple hours and, you know, they described it as just being this surreal, scary feeling. And a couple hours later, team came back and told them that I was missing a vital part of my heart and that I most likely, you know, wasn't going to make it through the night. So they actually sent in a minister to baptize me and give me my last rites. And they, you know, my, I was talking to my dad about this the other day, and he said that it was just this numbing, horrible, you know, how can this possibly be happening to me feeling? And they felt so hopeless and powerless to control the situation. And my mom was um, very nervous to get too close to me because you know, she was told that I was most likely going to die. So it was a very, very eventful first couple of, you know, hours of life. Um, and they were just kind of clueless and shocked. My mom actually had, um, I was breached, so I was delivered by C-section. So my grandmother actually was the first one to hold me. So she and I have always had this very special relationship and she kept these handwritten journals throughout all of my procedures. And, um, you know, she was kind of there when my mom couldn't be right after birth. Grandma's still with you today, Kelly. Yes. Yeah. She's excited. I'm doing this podcast. She just got a new iPad. So she's ready to, she's ready to listen. What's grandma's name? Her name is Betty. Hey, Betty. It's good to see you, Betty. Thanks for holding Kelly right away. She's great. So, Kelly, tell me your first memory you had of a uh, congenital heart defect. Um, when, when did you first remember being given this um, diagnosis, this, this lifestyle, if you will? Right. So I have some memories and I'm sure probably, you know, built on by just stories as well. But when I was four and I had the second stage of my Fontan, I was in the hospital for about six weeks, I believe. And I had chest tubes and I was always kind of feisty and my grandmother was helping me to the bathroom and she stepped on one of them and it tugged, you know, at my chest. And so I was not happy about that. Um, And when I was NPO, I kept trying to sneak lollipops and my dad, you know, wouldn't let me, but I would say kind of my first really formative memory was when we moved from, I was born in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and then we lived in um, the suburbs of Chicago. And then when I was seven, six or seven, we moved to Maryland. And for a while we, you know, flew back to Milwaukee and saw the team. And then we decided we needed to transition my care and kind of trying out various cardiologists was my first memory of kind of this lifestyle and this diagnosis because we saw two different cardiologists who, you know, talked only to my parents, even though I was seven or eight years old. And there was one doctor distinctly who wanted me to leave the room. And I was very upset about that because, 
you know, this was my heart and my life and I wanted to be involved. So I think that was kind of a formative memory of just, you know, coming into my own and being involved in my own care and advocating for myself, even at the age of eight, you know, I told my mom, like, that's not going to work. Why do you think the clinician wanted you not to be in the room? What what could you speculate there and what, what drove that kind of thought for them? You know, so I don't want to, to speak badly of anyone, obviously I'm not in their shoes, but I don't think it's so much the case now, but I think with, you know, pediatrics, there's this notion of, you know, the parents are the one in charge of your care. And so that's, and they're, you know, educated and, and older and can understand all of these things. And so that's who you're used to dealing with and kind of forget about, about that patient. And like I said, I was, you know, always have been pretty outspoken. So that just wasn't going to fly for me. And I was very spoiled by my previous team at Children's of Milwaukee. I was, you know, so involved. And back then there weren't, you know, any of the resources that there are today, there weren't resources for my parents. Uh, There weren't, you know, there wasn't Facebook or these online forums. And so the thing that we really relied upon, both my parents and myself, was the advice and care from my team and just kind of taking it day by day. So the other thing you probably realize, but it's worth saying, is that you freaked out every doctor you've ever seen in your life because you're 31 years old with HLHS, right? Um, nobody, nobody's in front of you. Nobody knows what to expect, right? Um, and so you've, you've spent your entire life um, making clinicians uncomfortable. So I, I wonder if, if, you know, a clinician wouldn't be like, you know, let's not have a seven-year-old in the room because we're going to have life and death conversations here. We don't know what's going to come, you know, and, and I can also appreciate how, how um, challenging that is from a clinical perspective to how to have that kind of conversation with a seven-year-old Right. When uh, I don't even know what to tell you, right? I mean, you're 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 living on the edge here. I don't know. So fascinating. So that's that's how you uh, woke up to this new world that you were born into. Was was the realization you want to have control of your healthcare? And I uh, you remember that as a seven year old. That's fascinating. Yes. <laughs> so you know the building on the fact that you're you're young, thirty one. Um, but nonetheless old in the HLHS community, um, you have gone through a lot. And tell me about um, college. You said it was the first time you started experiencing some complications, I think you said. And and um, how did that affect you? And how did you get to the point where you met Mike and, and decided to get married? That That's a fascinating aspect of your story. Yep. So I went away to college. I went to Dickinson um, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. My parents didn't want me to leave the East Coast um, because of my condition. So I was about two, two and a half hours away from home. Um, but you know, throughout college, I, I was just a normal college student doing the things that all college kids do. And at that point, I, um, you know, I'd always been told that I know my body best and I know my limits and I've always lived within that that mindset. And so college was great. And it wasn't until kind of the end of school that I started wrestling with the first major issue was my O2 sats were going down rapidly. And 
backtracking from that, Mike and I actually met, I would come home on the weekends occasionally and work at Lido Pizza, which I don't know if you guys have Lido out there or not. No, we don't. Tell me. Is it good? It is good. It is good. And so he had been there and we were very good friends for a while before we started dating. And I'd only had one other serious boyfriend before who was wonderful in college and accompanied me to, you know, the rare time I had to go to the emergency room and was also great about my heart. But as I started getting serious with Mike, kind of like Meg said in a previous episode, I started putting up the barriers and was like, you know, you don't want to get too close. I have this very serious health condition and I actually passed out in his arms at Lido's one night, which led to the hospitalization that discovered the the collaterals that needed to be coiled. So then he was by my side for this calf that was supposed to be two or three hours and turned into a nine hour procedure. And he refused to leave the waiting room, which is when my parents, you know, were like, well, we know he's a winner. Um, <laughs> so we we've been together for about 10 and a half years married for six and we were very good friends beforehand and he just wouldn't take no for an answer (laughs) which looking back on i'm very grateful and because we were such good friends before we had a romantic relationship you know we we discussed my health and some of the fears that came along with a serious relationship um and building a family. I was told at the age of 13 that I most likely wouldn't be able to biologically carry a child, which I'm very appreciative of the fact that they, you know, brought that up at a younger age. And so that was something that I put on the table right off the bat. And Mike is actually adopted. So, you know, if if we do decide to have a family, you know, any route is good with us, but it's, it's scary to open yourself up to that. And he just stepped up in ways that, you know, I never could have imagined. It's interesting that you now twice have referenced this, um, don't want to get too close type of paradigm. I think a lot of people can relate to that. It's interesting to me, you said that your mother was the first one that you referenced today, not wanting to get too close to you when you were an infant because the uncertainty of what was going to happen. So you, you've been experiencing that for your whole life, literally. Um, that is not an uncommon feeling and thought for these families. And um, I think that's a major hurdle that isn't talked about very much when it comes to dating and finding other significant people in your life that are not family by choice, right? That you're right. choosing to be part of that. That's a, I'm sure a lot of people struggle with that. Yes, absolutely. And I know that it probably sounds, you know, corny and mushy, but I truly believe in the soulmate factor. And I just think that Mike and I were meant to be, and he's, you know, been everything that I need him to be. So I feel very, very fortunate. We even have the same, he had esophageal atresion when he was a baby. And from one of my closed heart surgeries, I have the scar along my back and he has almost the exact same one from his esophagus surgery when he was young. So it's kind of crazy. <laughs> no, it is crazy. It's crazy to uh, soulmates have a different experience. Uh, stay tuned. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. I have a feeling is in a few <laughs> minutes. Um, so um, 
this this feelings in college and, and finding somebody and and living normal. You wanted to follow up with one other thing you said that you lived a normal life as a college kid. Uh, tell me what that means to you. What's a normal life as a college kid? Be specific. Well, I, you know, within reason, um, had some alcohol, stayed up late, um, pulled all nighters, you know, and at that time my physiology could, could bounce back. Now, if I am up late, I can't function for like two days, but in college, you know, I could do that. And, you know, I never felt any sort of, oh, I can't do that with you guys. Um, I actually even spent my junior year in the Turks and Caicos Islands on a remote island doing marine research for four months. Um, so the only thing that I couldn't do there was scuba dive, but the whole program, you were able to snorkel to Got get it. all the educational stuff done. Um, so, you know, although I knew I had to be careful and responsible, I'd known that all along. And so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really an issue. The only kind of hiccup would be if I was sick, you know, flu season, I tended to get a lot sicker than everyone else. So instead of bouncing back after four or five days in the dorm, a lot of times my parents came and picked me up and I was home for almost two weeks, but that was really it. No, that sounds like a pretty extraordinary, not just ordinary um, college life. Yeah, I was lucky. So after the ordinary, extraordinary college life, um, working at the pizza shop and falling, fainting in the arms of your future husband, which uh, that was a clever ploy there. Nice work. (laughs) Um, You've recently shared with me after uh, 10 years and being married for six, uh, Mike has had uh, a new transition for himself. Tell us about that. Yes. So we actually found out uh, Christmas two years ago that Mike himself had an undiagnosed congenital heart defect. Um, He was actually, he went back to school to become an echo tech and he had a benign tumor on his finger. And so over winter break, he went to have that removed and it was an outpatient surgery, but because um, it was on a nerve, they put him under general anesthesia. So my dad came with me just because I was anxious and I'm not good at, and I'm really not good as we found out about being on the other side of things. And so my dad came, you know, Mike was fine, did just great. We picked up food on the way home. Dad got us settled. He left and went home and we were settling in bed to watch a movie and sitting up against, you know, the, the headboard. And all of a sudden he just passed out. And I thought that he was kidding because he had told me he was gonna be too tired to watch the film. And all of a sudden he was, he was out, he was in and out of it for probably about 10 minutes. Um, The most traumatizing thing I've ever gone through. I called 911 and they were preparing me to start CPR. They had the phone on speaker and he, you know, was just completely white cold, drenched in sweat, like couldn't, couldn't stay up. Um, and so the ambulance came, they took in, he was kind of coming to by the time they got there and they chalked it up to 
just a bad reaction to anesthesia. To me, that didn't feel right. I, you know, knew that something was wrong. And so he followed up with his surgeon and told him what had happened. And the surgeon said, you know, there's, you need to get that checked out by either cardiology or neurology. And that doesn't sound right based on what we gave you. That's very extreme. So long story short, he got an appointment with my cardiologist who we're very close to, and she is um, adult congenital heart certified as well. And he called her actually just for a referral because she is no longer taking general cardiac patients. She's now focusing on ACHD patients. And she insisted that he come to her and he had a normal, you know, cardiac workup EKG didn't show anything, didn't hear anything. And at my insistence, I was like, you need to get an echo. And he got an echo and he had, um, two ASDs. So for those that don't know what ASD is, that that's a hole in the heart. Um, that's on the inside of your heart. And it's a communication between the, the right and left side of the atrium of the heart, which can lead to a shunt and can lead to arrhythmias. It can lead to strokes. It can lead to lots of things. So um, now your husband, Mike, unbeknownst to you, is now an adult congenital heart patient uh, overnight for you. We completely switched roles and I stepped into the caretaker and the supporter and he was the patient. And I think it's safe to say that we like we liked our roles better the way they were before. Yeah. So that begs the question, who is better at flipping their roles, you or him? Him. Why? But, well, I was a nervous wreck, absolute positive nervous wreck. I mean, I just, for someone who with my own body, you know, really doesn't freak out all that much. I mean, he sneezed and I was like, oh my God. You know, are, are you okay? What's happening? Um, you know, it was just very, very traumatizing. Yeah, so let's unpack that a little bit more. You know, what what, what made you terrified? Were you, um, uh, because you, I'm going to speculate, throw some things out there, let you react to it, it, because you're out of control. You know your body, you know how to react. You don't know his body, uh, so you can't control it. Is it because you... Uh, maybe thought there's something bigger and worse here or can you put your finger on what made that so challenging for you personally well to begin with i definitely wrestle with anxiety in general so that certainly didn't help on top of a traumatic experience where you know i was the only one there uh for the moment and I think a combination of everything that you just said, I think another thing that was really eye-opening for me was any sort of complications that I've had personally have been not expected, but I've known that that, you know, is something that could crop up down the line. If anyone's going to be sick or compromised here, it makes sense that it would be me. It's just totally different when it's your loved one as opposed to you. Can't imagine. So, going through that experience, um, what did your what did your parents say to you as you're going through this as a caregiver? Now, were they were they comforting to you? Or did they give you um, wise and sound advice that you could trust? Because they had already lived this that you're now being exposed to. They did. They were great. I actually called my mom 
while the ambulance was in route having, you know, like a meltdown, my dad who'd been there and then left ended up driving an hour back with my, um, we call her my bonus mom, his wife, Stacy. And they sat with us in the ER and they actually stayed with us for a couple nights afterwards, just because I was, you know, so anxious and they took over kind of looking out for him. And going back to my grandmother, I called her and she, I don't even remember exactly what she said, but she, you know, she was just so wonderful on the phone and day by day it got better. And it helps that we're very close with now our cardiologist. So she was there every step of the way, but my family was like, this is old news for us. I mean, they stepped in right away and, you know, probably like you were saying, oh, this is an ASD. It's not nearly as big of a deal. Like they're like, okay, we're old pros at this. Like you go do what you need to do and we'll take over here. So. No, and look, the anxiety thing, I don't think people talk enough about it. I appreciate you sharing that um, detail about yourself um, and, and your feelings because um, anxiety is very common in general populations and uh, panic attacks are, are extremely common amongst people around us every single day. Um, I don't know this, but I would imagine that that's even more common in, in a congenital heart world um, with everything you've been through. I don't know how it's, it's, it would be less. So um, that's probably not a new feeling for people that are listening to this and uh, they probably can really relate to that. Yes, absolutely. And that's something, you know, for me, I would love personally to see going forward, mental health being a bigger component of care plans, you know, from a young age, not just for CHD patients, but honestly, for for general population patients, because I think it's such a big thing. And I kind of got hit smack in the face when I was 25 or so and realized like, oh, shoot, now I have to really wrestle with, you know, issues of family and marriage and potential transplant. And I don't, you know, feel as great as I used to when I was 21, 22, 23. And I didn't really have an outlet for that because I hadn't been addressing that all along in a way, which is great because I, you know, wasn't feeling that, but then it all just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'm the first to, you know, say I've seen a wonderful therapist for almost four years now who has just been essential um, to my well-being and mental health. And I just can't advocate enough for it. No, I think that's an important message and we need to we need to continue to advocate for that as well, that the mental health is is important and you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome and things like this are a reality. Um, nobody can imagine what it's like to go from a patient to a caregiver as quickly as you went through and, and all that that goes through your head. Some of us would look at that and say, well, gee whiz, it's just an ASD. I mean, come on, you know, the ASD is no big deal, right? I mean, Kelly, everything you've been through, you must look at the ASD as just being no big deal. You you do a simple procedure, you fix it and and you're cured, right? Um, but it's it's much more complicated than that. You're you're overlaying a lot more anxiety on top of that uh, simple ASD and and reacting in a different way than some of us would react. And and that's important to highlight and think about what we can do to better support people like you. So so how's Mike doing today? He's great. But so the past couple of years, it's been fun because we you know do our cardiology appointments back to back. So it's like a date day. Um, 
And he actually, he's now working um, in pediatrics as a, a sonographer. So now he's kind of my guru and he's doing great. He, he's been um, out of school and employed for just about a year now. So he's very happy. Do I remember having that conversation with you and Mike at Feel the Beat? Was that when things started changing for Mike or am I mixing yeah. up my stories? No, you're correct. He, so when I first came to Mayo just for the, the stem cell um, punch trial, I guess that's yep. calling it, was in 2014. And he came and he'd been wanting to, you know, he'd been a great supporter for me and he wanted to get more involved. And I was slowly starting to feel out the community and finding my voice and resources. And I love to write. So I was doing some blogging and he came to Mayo and we were just blown away by the whole experience. And we got a tour of the lab and saw the beating cells. And he's like, you know, I want to, I want to do something. He was working um, in management for Wegmans food groups. And, he's like, you know, I, I kind of want to do something where I can make a difference. And I want to understand your heart and your anatomy and be able to advocate for you, you know, should the need arise. And so that was 2014. So that was kind of the pivotal change for him. And he had, you know, high hopes on pediatrics, um, even though his program was general. And then when he got to his pediatric rotation, he just was a goner. He's That's awesome. a giant kid himself. So well, it's that story is amazing. It seemed to recall that having that conversation yeah. and, and playing out those future plans at Feel the Beat um, in Rochester, Minnesota. Here, uh, so it's awesome to hear the follow up on that. And and um, boy, what an impactful person he can be in this community, given his experience as a caregiver, his experience with an ASD himself, and with his ability to be empathetic and caring and thoughtful as he uh, does the the ultrasound, um, echocardiograms for new patients. Uh, that's purpose right there. That's, that's more than a job. Exactly. And he, you know, he now has the perspective of everybody in the room from the patient to the loved one to the clinician. And although he's not super vocal about our story, you know, he is when he senses that it's appropriate and the reactions that he's gotten are just amazing. And for Heart Month, um, his hospital actually, they do a People of Children's post type thing. And so they featured him on Valentine's Day and talked a little bit about our story. And, you know, he is an employee and there were over like a thousand people that liked it and just reading all these comments from these parents that, you know, have interacted with him and how he put them at ease and how uh, one mom specifically said that, you know, his story gave her hope that you know, her little one would find love, you know, and be loved for, for who she is. So it's just been, it's been really powerful. And now, you know, he's sometimes hesitant to step into it with me. And I'm like, no, no, this is our story. Like I told him, you know, some of this would come up on the podcast. He's like, no, 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 it's about you. I'm like, no, but this is our story. You said that he hasn't shared his story very much. I, and I just thought, well, whoops, the cat's out of the bag now. I guess we're going to put that out there. So, oh, um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he's very willing to talk about it. But he's, for as outgoing and vivacious as he is, he can be a little shy. He thinks he's kind of small potatoes compared to HLHS, which I tell him is not true. 
Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. People seem, especially on Facebook, seem to compare their stories a lot, right? And I, I kind of provoked you a little bit with my, you know, it's not a big deal. It's an ASD type of thing. Um, because I, I wanted to, you know, uncover that a little bit more. There does seem to be this one-upsmanship on social media of, you know, oh, look, I had 14 surgeries in, in 13 days type of thing. Uh, you know, what are you complaining about? Or, and I'm just wondering if you if you see that yourself, if um, you've experienced that or, or what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so I'm actually so glad that you brought that up because that's something that I've always thought and, you know, wrestled with, and I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. And I feel there is this kind of weird sense of competition or comparison and in general, Facebook's not my favorite platform. So I've, you know, targeted my social media more towards organizations that I'm involved in for blogging or volunteer efforts, things like that, because while Facebook is great and there's certainly so many resources, and I think it's amazing to give hope to, you know, parents um, and to connect with someone like you, Facebook, it's very easy to search HLHS and find people. And I think that's wonderful, but I definitely backed off from a lot of the social media. No, I get it. I mean, I, I see it uh, from, from my vantage point too. It's just, it, it, it seems counterproductive, right? I mean, it, it actually, it's not what a lot of people want to be part of. They don't want to contribute to that negative energy story, but how do you, how do you find a voice? How do you find a platform that can have the positive story? Cause it's, it's not out there. It, it gets drowned out in the horrifying pictures that get the headline attention on right. social media. And then, you know, how do you compete? How do you, how do you have a voice in, in that, in that world? I, I think it's a real challenge. I don't think any of us have it figured out, but um, I, th I think it's just scary as heck to go look on Facebook and, and Twitter and things where um, these stories, uh, the negative stories are so amplified. And I can't imagine what a new parents um, of, uh, you know, expecting parents uh, reading that stuff, what they must think and feel. And is it helpful? Is it not helpful? I mean, everybody's different, I guess. I mean, another thing you said is it was really helpful when you were, I think you said 13, when somebody said, you're not going to ever have kids. Right. Whether that's true or not, um, you know, nobody really knows at 13. And that's a big right. question today. Uh, but as you said, it, it helped frame the expectations and you appreciated that. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, everybody's different, right? Everybody has so a different, different. place um, and a stage of this. And it's hard to match people with their stage of where they're at with a social media feed. Exactly. And that's something, you know, like you said, every patient is so, so different and you can have the same diagnosis, but, you know, vastly different outcomes. And when I was on some of these, you know, groups, I would get so sad and almost feel this sense of guilt that some of the stories that were posted, you know, the, the children really weren't doing well. And I'm thinking, you know, I underwent all this 31 years ago. Like, how is it, how is it possible that I've done so well? And, you know, this child might not. And so that's always been something that I've tried to balance because you also get the, you know, the individual on social media or, you know, a coworker's friend whose baby just got an HLHS diagnosis and they want to talk to you. And I always, you know, want to provide that sense of 
you know, hope and inspiration, but at the same time, and I know it sounds silly, I don't want to like set expectations that for reasons out of anyone's control, their child might not, you know, reach. Kelly, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, aren't you? Right. I mean, on one hand, you've got this survival or guilt um, with you that you just highlighted that, you know, I, I did fine. I feel bad. Why was I the one that had benefit and others don't, but you also want to give hope, but you don't want to over uh, promise and, and give expectations that may be not realistic. I mean, darn, that's, that's not easy. Yeah, it's a daily battle. And I've, you know, through expressing myself in the community, I've done more like I, like I mentioned before, blogging or writing. And my friend and I actually, um, she's a cancer survivor and we started a blog kind of based on health and wellness. And so I tackled, you know, some of those issues through my writing as well, because, you know, going back to the mental health piece, that was a big part of my life for the past five or so years. And I wanted, wanted that to be out there and, you know, kind of trying to, to just paint this very authentic picture with, so Kelly, there's a bunch of, there's hundreds of people right now that just heard you say that are really interested in finding your blog. Can you uh, direct people to how to find that blog? Sure. It's um, www.lovinglately.com. And it's not, you know, just part based by any stretch of the imagination. It's, you know, my friend and I, our experiences with mine with HLHS, hers with cancer. And then also, you know, we're just big into health and wellness and, mental health in general. So stuff like that too. Building on the wellness topic here a little bit, um, exercise. Um, are you, uh, are you a big exerciser for uh, the congenital heart world? Um, what, what's your, what's your routine? So I never thought that I would be more recently. I feel I've become much more of an exerciser. Um, you know, I didn't have any real physical limitations growing up. Um, you know, I was the oddball out that couldn't run the mile in gym class. Um, but, you know, I was just knew my body and knew my limits. And I played field hockey in middle school, but then I stopped in high school just because I knew it was going to be a much more competitive level and I wasn't going to be able to run up and down the field like that. So I switched to the dive team, actually. I spent my junior year spring semester in Turks and Caicos where... The majority of our classes were in the water. Um, and so very swimming dependent. That was probably the best shape I was ever in because I just swam constantly. And for me, it was great because I was swimming with a snorkel. So I felt like I could go forever because I didn't have to turn my head and, you know, gasp that air. I had the little snorkel to breathe sure. for me. Um, and then I got kind of lazy post marriage and Mike was working for Wegmans. And so there was a lot of he worked, he ran the deli department. So there was cheese and, you know, processed meats and wasn't eating very heart healthy. Wasn't really exercising. I was spending two plus hours a day commuting to work and working a desk job. And so I was complaining to my cardiologist that I just felt so lethargic and, you know, I felt like something was wrong. And she told me, you need to walk and you need to change your diet. I'm like, there's no, there's no way there's gotta be something else going on. But I listened to her and started walking a couple times a day. Didn't really matter how fast, um, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And Mike changed his life with me. He actually, I lost about 30 pounds. He lost about 60 pounds. Wow. 
congratulations. That's a lot of work. Yeah, we got Heart Healthy together. And from there, I became kind of just very into my walking and I would walk on my lunch breaks at work. So that was a great, you know, fresh air and release for me. And then when we moved to our new apartment, we had a gym. So I started, you know, dabbling with some some weight exercises. My cardiologist really wants me to do the bike because I guess there's a study about, there's an exercise study out there about Fontan circulation and biking, but I'm not a huge fan of the bike. Um, and then honestly, with this quarantine, since I've been home for 76 days or something now, who's counting? Yeah, who's counting, right? I have found a lot of these um, Instagram live workouts and various fitness apps. A lot of these apps were, you know, offering free membership, free trials. And so now Mike and I are in this great exercise routine. And how do you, the lethargic uh, feeling that you complained to your doctor, is that uh, all different with, uh, with the exercise routine? Absolutely. She was hundred percent right. <laughs> it's interesting too, because this, all this happened um, or overlapped with my two Mayo visits. And so when I had the visit in 2014, and then I came back in 2016 for that follow-up, um, the physician that I met with was like, wow, you've, you've drastically improved type thing. And so that to me was, you know, I'm a, a proof and a numbers type of person. I'm like, okay, this is, this is working. And now it's become, you know, so much more and I'm probably in the best shape that I've ever been in. Good and for you. It, it's, yeah, it's been a mental release. And it's also been, I think one of the things I love the most about it is it's given me this immense gratitude for my heart where I wrestled for a long time with feelings of resentment um, towards my heart and things I couldn't do or when I wasn't feeling well. And now doing this, I feel just like blown away. Like, wow, I've accomplished all of this and my heart is, is doing fantastic. And I'm, you know, so grateful for that. No, it's interesting you say that because um, when you had, you referenced the imaging analysis that we do in, in the study that, that it improved with your exercise and to be able to give that biofeedback, if you will, to people to, to prove to them that the exercise can not only make you feel better, but can can change your heart and can change your heart in a positive way. Um, that's got to be really motivating to see the proof in the, in the pudding, if you will, um, and, and keep you going. Exactly. Absolutely. That the physical and, you know, the mental aspect as well, you know, I, I totally believe all the, you know, studies out there that, that show the really positive effects on mental health and how exercise can even be as effective as certain pharmaceutical drugs. And I don't know how I would have survived quarantine without some sort of routine. And it's, it's been great because I have an accountability partner in, in Mike. Yeah, that's awesome. You're motivating me to uh, get off my chair right now and go for a walk here. So um, well, you have, that's what you have work to do. <laughs> so uh, last couple of questions here, Kelly. Right. Um, so um, how would you define the word hope? So I don't think I could really put just one definition on it. Um, hope to me is kind of the key to making everything better. It represents determination and motivation. But to me, I think at the end of the day, hope is just synonymous with living. And 
you know, living through these tough times and learning from those, growing through those, forming a support network to help you through those, you know, living through the good times and celebrating everything from, you know, that first sip of coffee in the morning to a trip of a lifetime, you know, that you take with a loved one. Um, and, you know, we're all so lucky to just be living in the here and now. So that's really kind of what I've associated hope with. And then also, you know, knowing hope to me is, is programs and initiatives like, like what you all are doing at Mayo and like all these very devoted um, clinicians and physicians. And my, my personal cardiologist exemplifies hope to me. She started a support group for all of her adult congenital patients that, you know, has been one of the most profound things that, you know, has happened to us in our heart journey. And she did that on her own time, you know, after work on her own initiative. And I think, you know, it's, it's just that living every day and hoping no pun intended for the best. Yeah, no, those are great examples. So Kelly, if you could put your magic wand on one thing and change for the HLHS community, what would you change? Well, I think I would, like I talked about before, so I don't want to ramble on too much about it, but weaving in mental health care from an earlier, you know, an earlier plan of action uh, for both families and patients, because yeah. you know, it's, it's very important for these family members as well. And then, and I don't know quite how we do this, but getting more education out there to the general medical population, because I know, and I've, I've talked with others about this. I've seen stories of this. I've had my own experiences where, you know, we show up in the ER or, you know, in, in a clinic because we're sick and no one really knows what to do with us. And there are, are some providers that are wonderful and will go above and beyond. And then there are others that, you know, they're like, oh yeah, I, I read about that for 15 minutes, maybe in, in med school. And you know, I've been lucky that I haven't really had too, too many issues with it. I've only had one or two bad experiences, but I think that, and for, you know, CHD in general, they're, you know, we're the first generation living, you know, into adulthood and we're here and we're going to keep being here. And the outside medical community needs to be equipped to deal with, you know, some of these, or at least be a little bit more educated on that. So I don't know how that gets done. I would leave that up to you. <laughs> Well, I don't, I can't do it alone, but I think it's uh, the inspiration of families and people like you that really inspire us to, to recognize the gaps, right? And as I've said, you've, you've lived this entire life from day one of life uh, to today. You're, you've been a pioneer and you've been pushing the comfort level of, of the health community um, from day one. So this is what we're all about. We're all about uh, making Kelly the normal, not the abnormal or anomaly right? Um, the goal is for next generations to, to take what you've done for granted. And, and how do we build better hearts? How do we build better people? How do we build better teams uh, to be resilient and innovative to, to make this the norm? That's what we're all about. And uh, this is what takes a community of us to, to do it together. Uh, none of us can do it alone. So 
Kelly, I deeply appreciate your time today. I am inspired by your story. I'm, I'm thrilled to hear Mike's um, career and purpose. I'm, I'm delighted to hear Mike had a good outcome with his uh, CHD. Um, so all of this makes me very happy and this won't be the last time we connect and I look forward to continuing the conversation. So thanks for joining us today, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure.